there's certain sounds and experience in life that make you kind of kind of cringe. The classic would be the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard. It's never bothered me. That sound doesn't bother me, not even a little. You know what does bother me? Cracking knuckles. Why would you do that in front of me? It's so rude. Stop it. Um, you know what else? Velvet. Like, if you push velvet the wrong way, oh, that's just, that's awful. Also, the 1990 self-titled album by Wilson Phillips. Every track off that album, oh, oh, my sister would play that thing over and over and just, no more. Turns my stomach. And then you read your Bible and you get to passages and you read things like wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Ooh. Ooh. Slaves obey your earthly masters? Ooh. And we read these things. I mean, submission to authority is unpopular, to put it mildly, in our day. It's unpopular. Um, certainly, particularly wives to husbands. Um, and you can see how this, not only does it sound unpopular, it sounds downright dangerous that somebody could actually use these words to condone the subjugation of women or to perpetuate slavery, and it's been done. It has been, people have tried to use it that way. So it's obviously controversial. Um, Megan, who read for us, you know, recently, a Merrimack student, recently engaged, like, what did I get myself into here? <laughs> Um, so this is, this is a tough one. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning in a short period of time. So I apologize up front that we're going to, we have to cover a lot of ground. Um, and issues like these are, it's, it's hard for me as a preacher because it's a one-way conversation. Sometimes this would be better if we were to sit down and discuss with each other um, when we hit some of these tougher topics. Like a couple weeks ago, we hit on some very difficult and personal and sensitive topics. And Sometimes it might be better to just have a conversation. That's why I recommend small groups. We gather in small groups to discuss scripture, and you can have a little bit more of a back and forth. It's a little unfair when it's just one person just kind of this way. Um, so, but, I, but I just, up front, I confess that this is kind of a one-way thing. If you get hung up on these things, I'd love to set up a time, maybe talk through in more of a conversation You'll also notice today I'm going to be kind of sticking to my notes a little bit more. So if you see me looking down more than usual, um, it's because I'm, I want to be careful with my words. I'm, I don't want to be stupid or careless. Uh, I, want to, I want to try not to misspeak, although I might anyway. Um, but we're going to have fun. Hey, church is fun. Kids are here today. It's a family Sunday. Good to see all the kids. Uh, heading back to school if you haven't already. So just good to be together. This passage of scripture addresses children directly. So it says children, and then we'll get to that. So it's, it is for the children as well. It's for all of us. Um, so we're going to have, it's, it, so it's going to be good to be together as we journey through this. The premise of this whole passage is verse 21. This is the principle. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in the context of this, it's about being filled with God's Spirit. So the teaching is 
be filled with God's spirit, and it's going to lead to this way of life, which includes just submitting to one another. As you follow Jesus, as you are filled with God's spirit, that we become people who willingly submit to others. That Jesus, fully God, willingly submitted to the will of the Father and gave his life for us. And this sets a precedent. It sets an example for us to follow as we put our faith in Jesus. We're going to see how this principle of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is lived out in three relationships in the household. The husband and the wife, the child to the parents, and a slave to the master. All underneath this notion of submitting to one another. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word, even um, parts of your word that may be difficult for us or easy to perhaps misunderstand. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, and to your word. And we pray that you would be our teacher in this time. Father, keep me from error and help us to grow and to know your heart and to know your way, Lord. We desire to follow you in everything, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first example is husbands and wives. And this is where this one gets tricky because we have words like submit or that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, there's Christians and people who take the Bible seriously have different views about how to best interpret this teaching. What I'll call view number one is that God's design is that husbands lead their households. And this is an ideal to be lived out for all time that men lead and women follow. And that is God's design for the world. We'll call that view number one. View number two would say that leadership in the household is more of a cultural phenomenon. That God's design for men and women is much more equal in that it doesn't, God's design does not necessitate that a husband be in charge in all instances. And so that's kind of view one, view two, and there's a whole spectrum between those. But in view number one, those who hold to that view would say that there's something about the created order in God's design uh, where men are to lead, that God has a unique role for men to lead, especially in the context of a family and, and it goes all the way to, to God's design and creation and they would, um, places in the New Testament like 1 Timothy 2 picks up on this same kind of a theme. And we get teaching like this, is the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 23, let me read it. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And we've already in this letter, for those who have, we've been preaching through Ephesians for those who are uh, just joining us today, that the headship of Christ has been described in detail in chapter 4. It is from Christ, the head, that the body, the church, grows. It is how the body matures. Christ's headship expresses care rather than control. It expresses responsibility rather than just ruling over the church. That It's, it's from Christ's headship that the body of the church grows and matures. And in this view, you would say, okay, well, the husband then, in the context of marriage, recognizes his headship and uses it to express love and service to his spouse as described here in the passage. Love, 
caring for, willing to lay down your life for the other. Submission, in that sense, is a, it's a beautiful expression of Christ-like love to respect your husband's good and God-given desire to serve and lead you and your family. Let me give you that definition again. Submission, wife to the husband, is a great expression of Christ-like love to respect your husband's good and God-given desire to serve and lead you in your family. And when I preach, uh, there's a parallel passage to this one in in the book of Colossians, which I have preached before. And I sort of, that was sort of the, the line I, kind of where I landed in that teaching. But in what I'm calling view number two, or the second view, they would say, agree with that in its context, but that this teaching is a specific application to the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to uh, the Roman world, Ephesus in particular, in the first century. And God is, you know, it's, it's God's word. It's not just Paul writing, but the Spirit empowering him. But the assumption that he makes is that husbands would take the lead in the home. This would have been perfectly culturally acceptable to both the men and the women who would receive this letter. That the, the, the husband takes the lead, and it's a male-dominant culture. That's just the way it was. But is that same assumption true for all cultures in all times? And those who would hold to what I call view two would say, well, no. Again, God's design is much more equal than that. You know, Genesis says God made male and female in his image, both equally in the image of God. And when God made man and woman, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, we translate this word, this Hebrew word as a helper or a helpmate. But you could also translate that word savior. It's actually a word that's in the Old Testament more times used to describe God's relationship to his people. That he is the helper, the savior. It could be translated ally in battle. It's it's that kind of, of a notion. But in the first century, women really couldn't be the leaders of their family. Um, They would often have lacked the authority, the education, the ability to provide and lead in that way. But that's clearly not the case in our day, that women could easily be more uh, educated than their husbands. Wives could um, have life experience and skills uh, and ability to provide even financially for their families uh, more so than their husbands. And in this kind of the second view, you'd say mutual submission is still the principle, but it's going to look very different in our day than it would have in first century Ephesus. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't any difference between male and female. The Bible clearly assumes that men and women are different and unique, but the Bible doesn't give us a clear list of here's roles that are appropriate for a man and here's roles that are appropriate for a woman, or here's character traits that are more feminine, here's the ones that are masculine. It doesn't give us a clear picture like that because these things uh, are very, in, in many ways, culturally understood. For those who hold this view that the, this teaching really is 
Now, the mutual submission is the principle that holds true, but some of the application of it's going to be different today. Um, would say, well, look at the look at what Paul teaches about slavery. Most of the people in this room, I hope, would say that slavery is not a good God-given institution, you know, God's good design, that you would say, no, this is actually not good. I'd hope that would be your view. They would say, well, when Paul says to those who are slaves, say, slaves, obey your masters, he's not condoning the institution of slavery. He's just saying, if you find yourself in this situation, there's a way you're going to live. In the same way, when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's not saying that all cultures everywhere need to be male-dominant, like the one that they live in. It doesn't, you're going to live a certain way within your culture that you're in, but it doesn't, he's not imposing that culture on all times and places. Whether it's a culture, a slave culture, or whether it's a male-dominant type of a culture. Wherever you fall on this spectrum, kind of what I call view one and view two, and there's a lot of nuance and in-between space there, I would encourage us all to use God's word as your standard. To use God's word to shape your understanding of these things. Not what you want God's word to say, or not just because, okay, this phrase bristles me a little bit with my you know, sensibilities, but to really take seriously God's word. But whatever view you take, the principle doesn't change. It's a principle of mutual submission. And it was radical in the day it was taught. This no, when, when Paul writes to this church and he's talking about submission, when he puts it in the context of mutual submission, it, it's, it looks very different than a lot of the world around them were living. When when Paul calls on the husbands of this church to love their wives in such a radical way that essentially the husband is serving the wife in that way, this is a, this is a radical teaching. That was almost, that type of way of living was almost unheard of when this letter was written. And we remember in the New Testament, where whoever has authority for whatever reason, it's never unlimited. It's never absolute authority or unconditional authority. Authority is never meant to exploit others. Throughout the New Testament, those who have authority recognize that God has given them that authority and that they're to use it in you know, being responsible to the God who gave it to me, but also for those who will be blessed by my leadership or authority. And you'll notice in the teaching here that there's more words that are given to instruct the husbands than it is for the, the wives. For us, we read this, and it, what jumps out to us is where it says, wives, submit to your husbands and everything. That jumps out to us today. But to them, what would have jumped out to them is all this teaching to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, who, say, who purified his church by giving his life for them. That's the part that would have really jumped out. The example here, again, it's Christ. Fully God, but submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus laying down his life. And that creates a pattern for all believers everywhere, male or female, that we now have this pattern where we seek not just our own interests, but to love and to respect the other. And when it's lived out th this way, verse 32 says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
Verse 33, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He's saying, he said, look, I'm talking about Christ in the church, but I'm talking about husbands and wives, and they explain each other. If you understand how much God loves you, you're going to understand love and marriage. And the more you understand love and respect in marriage, you're going to understand God's love for us. Marriage uniquely represents God's love as it's lived out in this way. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Regardless of the nuance of, of your view of these things, the big picture here is that mutual submission looks like a husband sacrificially loving his wife, a wife respecting the husband. So how do we apply this today as a church? Well, we support marriage. We value marriage because it reflects, it, it reflects God in a unique way. But marriage is tough. There's, in two groups in particular who it's tough for. One is for people who are not married, uh, who desire to be married, who just haven't found that, or have experienced divorce, or the death of a spouse. So these are people who desire to be married for those different reasons are not, and this is a very difficult concept to understand and to live out. The other group, so that's the, those who aren't married, the other group who this is hard for is people who are married in very difficult marriages, very unhappy marriages. So between those who aren't married and those who are unhappy in their marriage, that's actually a fairly big chunk. And we say, yeah, because marriage is tough, but it's beautiful. And when we live it God's way, it is good, and it reflects him. And we experience that with each other, and it reflects him to our families and to the world. So we're going to invest in marriage. We're going to have marriage courses. We're going to have support for marriages and parents and uh, uphold the dignity and the beauty of, of Christian marriage. So that's the first way we live out mutual submission, husbands and wives, wives and husbands. The second way with children and parents. Let me just read these verses again. Uh, chapter 6. Uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. Fathers or parents, we could translate that. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This was Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, one of the first verses I memorized as a child. My mom had me memorize this verse. <laughs> True, mom? Yes, you did. So it was probably the third verse I memorized. Probably John 3.16 was the first. Uh, probably Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And then Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But remember, in, in, in the ancient world, children were really seen just as property. Um, basically a possession of their parents. You could treat a child however you want, emotionally, physically, whatever. There's no recourse against you as a parent because it's your child. And, and yet, children in this letter are addressed directly. Paul's writing, dear children in the church, you are you're not just property of your parents, you are responsible to God to live in a way that honors him by being obedient to your parents. But there, remember, it's mutual submission is the principle. So parents, likewise, 
Um, don't exasperate your children. Don't stifle your children with unnecessary rules and, and unnecessary rituals and just constantly nagging your children. Children need to be obedient. Parents need to set standards but not totally exasperate the children. God's design is harmony here. Now, in their day, in Ephesus, I think the treatment of children was probably pretty harsh and strict as a general way. Maybe too harsh and too strict. I think today, maybe we struggle with just the opposite. Too permissive. You know, I talk to people, you know, how's life going? And it seems as if the children are running the household. That all the activity and all the calendar... And everything that happens in the house revolves around the children, including spiritual matters. We recently talked to someone say, oh yeah, we didn't come to church today because the kids didn't want to come to church. So that's an interesting way to make a decision about gathering to worship or not. We need to lead, to be spiritual leaders as parents and to set good boundaries. Again, not to stifle our children, but in my experience, that undisciplined children don't tend to follow Jesus as Lord of their life. I mean, how can you follow Jesus as Lord if you can't even follow household rules? On the flip side, I think that children who are over-disciplined or who have things just forced on them uh, don't have the individuality and the, the courage to to really trust God on their own. And some of you are raised in those kind of homes where you would say, faith was shoved down my throat. And you weren't able to genuinely experience that. So, now again, telling your kids we're going to church today is different than religion was forced down my throat. Okay, there's a... But your kid might draw the line in a different place where you would draw it as a parent. But as a church, we value children. That's why it's a high priority we don't worship children here. We worship Jesus. But we put a high value on children and youth and our program so that when kids come here, they can genuinely enjoy being with God's people and, in, and genuinely exploring faith, their own personal faith in Jesus Christ, not just the faith of their parents. Um, we don't want to stifle them or impose unnecessary rules, but allow them to have a place where they can grow and, and to support parents too. we got a new parenting uh, small group that will be starting this fall. You can talk to Pastor Dan about that. Uh, but we really do want to support parents and families to walk this line. This is not an easy line to walk. But as we walk it with this principle of mutual submission, it's good. That's the second place we see this principle lived out. The third place, lastly, is with slaves and masters. Okay, so let me reread these verses just to reorient us. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, win their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no favoritism with him. The teaching to slaves and masters, look, both of you have to answer to God. 
So you're going to operate in a way that acknowledges that you have to answer to God. Now, slavery in the first century, I will say, in some respects, is very different than how we understand how slavery was practiced in this country, say, pre-Civil War American slavery. Very different institution. Uh, slavery in the Roman world was, was much more common. Perhaps a third of the whole population would have been the slave population. The one thing in common is you can't leave. If you're a slave, you are someone else's property. You do not have your own individual rights, and you can't just walk away. So you work for somebody, you're their property. But the type of job you had as a slave would make all the difference. Some were skilled workers or craftsmen, uh, teachers, doctors. If you went to a doctor in the first century, you're probably going to see a slave. However, you know, well, some were managers and, you know, had more uh, higher roles because of their job, but other unskilled workers would be living a terrible life working in a mine where you'd probably get killed by the terrible working conditions. Your life expectancy would be very short. So your job makes a huge difference. And your master makes a huge difference. You could be treated very well, like a member of the family. Or you could be treated like trash. It could, it's, you can't say, this is what slavery was in the ancient world, because it, so, it was so diverse and such a big part of the population, the big part of the way of life. Some slaves did earn wages, and you could actually, over time, earn your freedom. And some slaves did that. Other people sold themselves into slavery as, as an economic advantage. So it would, for some people, it, it's a better option to be a slave of someone than to be a, a free laborer who is a peasant and so poor. You could actually improve your economic and living conditions by being a slave. Uh, at times. So it's, it's all very diverse. This, it's all different ways. Um, the Apostle Paul in his other writings, he does encourage slaves that if you can earn your freedom, you should be free. We are meant to live as free people, he would teach. But again, this is a big, huge part of the Roman world. Interesting, slavery existed then, and it was understood that there would be both slaves and masters who were part of this church in Ephesus that they were brothers and sisters in Christ, they just had different roles. And living out that role, you apply this principle of submission, that you follow the way of the Lord, and you're responsible for that. Slaves obey your earthly masters. Masters treat them the same way, you know, serving you know, wholeheartedly and not being harsh and threatening. What we wanted him to say, though, is slavery's wrong. We want Paul to say, dear slaves and masters in Ephesus, you know that slavery's wrong and morally evil. However, because you live in this terrible place, slaves obey your masters. Masters don't threaten your, your slaves. Two things to remember when we want him, we want Paul to write that. Two things. One is that it would have meant nothing to them. It would have been meaningless to say, oh, of course this, this, is, this institution's a moral evil, because they didn't have the structures to overthrow it. Paul doesn't write a letter, a six-page letter, and he says, oh, by the way, you should start a social revolution, whereby all the slave class, you know, revolts and, and becomes free. He, that's not the instructions he's giving in this short letter. He's trying to address the day-to-day -day needs of this congregation, which included both slaves and masters. 
they didn't have the means to overthrow the whole Roman social and economic system, this one small church. And yet, this one small church could live in such a way within that structure that would point the whole world to a different way, the kingdom of God. So it would have been meaningless to them because they just couldn't, they couldn't have done anything with that. Secondly, we need to remember that when we want Paul to write slavery was wrong, don't miss that what he wrote implies, you know, throughout the New Testament and, and other writings in the New Testament, imply the moral wrongness of slavery. You know, when, when he's teaching, get your freedom if you can, when the, you know, the book of Philemon, where Philemon is called to consider a slave as a brother in Christ, or former slave, um, this is, this is uh, very much on a trajectory where Bible-believing Christians are the ones who actually did the hard work to dismantle slavery in this country and in Europe and other places in the world. It was Bible-believing Christians who, who worked hard, including the founders of this church, um, as, we, as we love to remember. So then how do we apply this teaching then to slaves and masters? Because we don't have slavery in our world today. Could teach you how to be a Christian in a really bad job with a really terrible boss. We have plenty of that. Is that too much of a jump? I actually don't think it is. Because if, if you're in a bad work situation and you're being mistreated, there's different ways you can handle that. If you can get out of that situation, then do it. Or you can acknowledge that you have to answer to God and you can respect the authority that's over you as you seek to navigate that. Or you can complain, you can talk bad about your boss, you can drag down the whole culture of your workplace right with you. There's different ways to live. And if we, if we seek to follow Christ, no matter how bad your situation, there's ways that you can live as a light in that place. We can absolutely learn that from this. So it's... You know, wives to husbands, um, children to parents, slaves and masters, all these different relationships, you live out the reality of what it means, of what God has done. What this means is there's no area of your life that's off limits to God. Again, this whole letter is basically, this is what God has done for you. He's reconciled you to himself. He's called you to be a new people connected to each other, that you're to live both as a, as a community and in your families and all the places God has you with a new way. Because what God has done shapes you. The gospel shapes your life. So this isn't just a passage about how to have a better marriage, how to be a better parent, um, how to have more obedient children, how to be a better worker. It's about following the way of Jesus in a way that shows the rest of the world that there's a different way. There's a way... No matter how broken or bad our world is, there is a way that follows Christ that is a blessing to you. And yes, it, a blessing to your marriage and your family, but a blessing to the world as well. Jesus Christ restores our lives, but he restores our relationships to each other. And he redefines our role, whether we're husbands, wives, parents, children, employer, employee, or some combination of those things, whatever God has called you to, that we follow the way of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, help us to live this out. Help us to know what it means to live this out for your glory. And Lord, as we 
as we see this glorifies you, we see how it is a blessing in our lives and a blessing to our world. May we live in such a way that shines that light everywhere we go. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.